Hello and welcome to our three-part video summary series examining all you need to know when it comes to understanding the poems in the Power and Conflict Anthology. And this is especially useful if you are studying these poems as part of your exams at GCSE. So in this first part, we'll examine the first few groups of poems and examine the structure, language and form, as well as a little bit about the author and discuss some of the meaning that you can draw from each of these poems. Make sure you do check out also part two and part three, where we look at some more poems and discuss them in more depth. So to begin, the collection starts with Ozymandias, which is by Percy Shelley. The poem itself features a speaker who comes across a traveller and it tells him about a statue in the desert. The statue is of a proud and boastful king who once ruled. This king is called Ramesses and however the statue is now crumbling and it's a vestige of the past which has now gone. In terms of understanding the author himself, Percy Shelley was a very famous romantic poet and contrary to what you would assume when it comes to the idea of romance, it doesn't actually mean love. Romantic, the romantic movement was a movement between the 17 and 1800s whereby nature and anything to do with the natural world and the village and the countryside was associated with perfection and it was something to be aspired to whilst anything that was associated with the city was seen as corrupt. Uh, and this is a movement that Percy Shelley was part of. In addition, he was known for his ly lyrical and philosophical style. Now, when you are examining the poem itself, Ozymandias, first remember that it was written in sonnet form. This is important because traditionally we associate sonnets with love poems. They are written for love. However, Percy Shelley uses this in an ironic sense. It's remembering King Ramesses II and on the surface it appears to be maybe an ode to him, um, something that is positively remembering this all-powerful king. However, when you scratch beneath the surface actually it appears to really mock this king uh, it has a turning point in addition when you're considering the structure um, at line nine the poem itself uses iambic pentameter which is also disrupted and this disrupts the flow because although initially we appear to be celebrating king ramesses ii the sonnet turns and it appears to mock his power so this man that thought he would never fall is suddenly powerless against nature once he dies and everybody forgets him the first half of the poem talks about the statue and its many parts and also now the second half of the poem talks about the desert and how the small the statue is in relation to it and how nature has taken over the statue. In terms of the language, this language is all about power, namely human power. King Ramesses was a really, really powerful and also very vicious ruler and he really enjoyed the power that he had over men. However, nature has taken over once he's died and natural language comes through to really show that nature is much more powerful than man. And the attitudes that are explored in this poem are arrogance, pride, but also attitudes towards power, uh, both the king and also nature. London is another poem in this uh, anthology and it's by William Blake. The poem itself features a speaker who walks through London. He notices all the despair, the uh, squalor, the corruption around him. And he describes just how affected he is by this. He sees a soldier who presumably is protecting the monarchs. However, his he sighs and his blood runs down palace walls. And no one really seems to be able to escape this degradation in this city of London.
Now, when it comes to the author himself, William Blake, like Percy Shelley, was a romantic poet. Again, remembering that romantic poetry saw nature and anything to do with nature as the thing to be aspired to. It's a symbol of purity, innocence, and the city was viewed as inherently corrupt. And London really brings this out. It really illustrates Blake's view of how the city not only is corrupting, it's degrading their young children, prostitutes, their soldiers who are exploited by the monarchy, but also more widely, this is a real criticism of the monarchy itself. Uh, so he was considered pre-romantic for his thoughts, but also he uh, was very much against organised religion and big government. When it comes to the structure and language of this poem in particular, there's a dramatic monologue with an ABAB rhyme scheme. The regular rhythm could reflect the steady misery the speaker sees or the regular footsteps of the soldiers who are marching and protecting the monarch, the very same monarchs who won't look after them and who won't look after the working classes. The first two stanzas talk about the misery and the people the speaker sees and the third stanza talks about the people the speaker finds responsible for the misery. The church and the politicians are really condemned indirectly in this poem and the final stanza returns to the images of the people. In terms of language, the poem uses visual and auditory language to describe the destitute and dark scenes and really the attitudes that are explored are anger and hopelessness. The prelude is another important poem in this, so the prelude Stealing the Boat by William Wordsworth. And in summary, the speaker finds a boat and takes it out to a lake, and he's really happy, he's frolicking and enjoying nature. Suddenly, however, he comes to a mountain and there's a turning point in the tone of the poem, and we find that the speaker is really awed, but also really scared by its enormous size, and he turns around and returns home. So the author William Wordsworth was another English poet, and he started the Romantic Movement. When it comes to the structure and language of this poem, the poem uses blank verse with a regular rhythm and it's split into three sections. So the first section features the narrator being happy and excited to steal the boat and he takes it out onto um, the lake. In the second, the stanza, the speaker rather, is frightened by the sheer size and power of the mountain. And by the third section, uh, the speaker reflects on this experience and he reflects really on the power of nature. The poem changes using a combination of pastoral image, arrogance and intense, as well as threatening um, language to describe nature. But also the poem ends in a fairly reflective way. And the three main attitudes in this poem as it progresses are confidence, fear and reflection. My Lost Duchess, a poem by Robert Browning, features a duke uh, who really shows a visitor a painting of his former wife, who's a duchess. He explains that she was far too kind and flirtatious with everybody. So he had her stopped and killed. He doesn't say how, but we do infer directly that he is killed. And the visitor finally walks away and we find that he's there to arrange the duke's next wedding. The author, so the poet Robert Browning, was an English romantic poet and he was known for his dramatic monologues, his irony as well as his dark humour. Now when it comes to the structure and language of this poem, it's a dramatic monologue written in iambic pentameter and it rhymes which makes a duke look stable. But then there's enjambement, which is a sentence that continues over multiple lines when there's a, there's no punctuation at the end of a sentence. And this suggests that the Duke is losing control and becoming angry and more frenzied as he's speaking. Uh, 
the two characters, so in terms of structure, are walking through an art gallery and the Duke gets carried away talking about this one particular picture of his previous duchess. And the action builds to his almost confession of what he's done to her before he walks away. The poem uses dramatic irony and it shows that even though what the Duke says appears seemingly innocent, we can tell that something else is going on. And the attitudes explored in this poem are pride and jealousy because the Duke has a lot of pride and is jealous of all that belongs to him. And he clearly values and uses his power quite ruthlessly. The other poem in the collection is The Charge of the Light Brigade by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Uh, in summary, this poem describes a real battle that took place between the British and the Russians during the Crimean War. And the British mistakenly charged into the valley when they only had swords and the Russians had guns. So they were outgunned and outnumbered, but they valiantly fought, even if there were many of them were killed and defeated. The, the, so the author, Alfred Lord Tennyson, is considered one of the most famous British poets. Queen Victoria was a huge fan of his work and he was known for furiously revising everything he wrote many times over. In terms of the structure and the language of this poem, uh, it's in third person with a strong rhythm that keeps the poem moving. It has some areas of rhyme which are disrupted and this could reflect the chaos of the battlefield with so soldiers and horses stumbling as they are killed by the Russians. All except the last stanza are of the same length and these stanzas describe the charge, the battle and the final retreat and the final shorter stanza praises the men for their bravery in this battle. The poem uses uh, repetition in order to show the inevitability of what is to come and it uses language about bravery and violence and the attitudes explored are respect, patriotism and admiration. This poem certainly lords the soldiers. So if you enjoyed this, do subscribe and give us a thumbs up. Um, and also, if you want more detailed analysis on these poems, do visit www.firstratetutors.com where you will find much more detailed worksheets and model answers on this poetry anthology. Make sure you come back for part two and part three where we examine the rest of the poems in this anthology collection. Thank you so much for listening.